Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming along on a Friday evening. We do really appreciate your support for this event. And I first of all want to speak on behalf of Sydney Law School and to say how wonderful it is for us to welcome you here, Cormac, and to thank Sydney Ideas, to thank the Environmental Humanities Group and also the Human um, Animal Rights Network for their support for the event as well. And some of you may know that the University of Sydney is currently investing quite a lot of research money in trying to encourage interdisciplinary collaborations between different networks, different faculties, different schools. And I hope that this is one of the first of many. Well, it's, it's really delightful for me to be welcoming Cormac here this evening because Cormac and I were at law school together in the 1980s and we don't manage to catch up all that often. We've just worked out that the last time we saw each other was 10 years ago. So it's really a personal pleasure to welcome Cormac here and I don't think that way back at law school we ever imagined that we would both be in the environmental um, space in one way or another or that I'd be welcoming you to Sydney Law School. So it's really wonderful um, to have you here. So as you know, uh, Cormac's talk this evening is called Earth Rights Reframing Society for the 21st Century. And essentially what Cormac is going to talk to us about is the need to move towards a more ecocentric approach to environmental law and away from this almost anthropocentric obsession with the way that we conceive of the environment and of the way that we conceive of environmental law. And he's going to look particularly at the question of climate change and the protection of ecosystems. So Cormac first expressed his views on this issue in a book which is called Wild Law, a Manifesto for, for Earth Justice, which is now in its second edition. Apparently it's not available in Australia, Cormac, because we try to get Glee books to promote it here this evening, but in any case you certainly will find it on Amazon and other types of online bookstores. And since publishing this work, there's been really a global movement building around Cormac's thoughts on earth justice. Uh, for example, there's been a number of wild law conferences held. The third has just been held in Brisbane just this last week. Um, he led the drafting of the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth, which was proclaimed in April 2010 in Bolivia. And also in April, he addressed the United Nations General Assembly on the need to adopt and to recognize this declaration on the rights of Mother Earth. Now, because I know that many people in the room aren't environmental lawyers, I'm just going to talk very quickly um, from an international but also from an Australian perspective about why it may be that we find that environmental law is so anthropocentric. And we really have to go back to look at the genesis of modern environmental law to the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in 1992, which you may know as the Rio Conference. And, of course, this was the conference, and many of the documents which came out of that were to set the agenda for sustainable development and to guide the development of environmental laws into the future. But something which is really quite remarkable is that principle one of the Rio Declaration states the following. Human beings are at the centre of concerns for sustainable development. They are entitled to a healthy and productive life 
in harmony with nature. And I think to have that as principle one of the most fundamental document coming out of the UN, the UNCAD conference, is really something which is, is startling that there the nations of the world gather together for the sake of the environment, and yet that's principle one, that human beings are really at the centre of the concern um, about the move towards sustainable development. And I attended the Rio Plus 10 conference in Johannesburg in 2002, where we could see that very much even that euphoria about the environment at Rio had moved to a situation where there was a realization that there never could be sustainable development unless there was an alleviation of poverty. And so you may know that shortly before that, the Millennium Declaration had been established and the Millennium Declaration goals, which set as its goal to halve the number of people in the world living on less than $1 a day by 2015. And so at Rio Plus 10, the emphasis was on water, on energy, on health, on agriculture, and then lastly on biodiversity. And I think that there's been a lot of discussion in Australia at the moment about climate change and the negotiations that happen under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But once again, really what we see is this titanic battle between developed and developing economies to work out who has the rights to use up what's left of the carbon budget in the atmosphere. And it really is. If you read the, the negotiating texts and you read the agreements that come out of these negotiations, it's very anthropocentric. We hardly ever hear the fact that this is really all about the survival of the earth itself and all species and all ecosystems. So it's really no wonder that environmental laws in individual jurisdictions follow this international pattern of focusing on human beings as being at the center of sustainable development. And I must say that environmental laws, lawyers here in Australia have been quite distressed because the dominant paradigm for environmental regulation since the mid-1990s has been a paradigm where policymakers and government have decided to deal with environmental externalities by creating new markets and to trade in everything so as to allocate resources better, to manage problems better. So, in fact, Australia is the most advanced jurisdiction in terms of setting up new markets around environmental issues. So at the moment, of course, we're talking a lot about whether or not we'll have an emissions trading scheme commencing in 2015, but we already have a national water trading market which uh, is intended to be fully functional and operational by 2014. We've got markets in salinity pollution where polluters can trade credits in salinity which they're discharging into rivers. We have markets in biodiversity where developers who want to uh, clear native vegetation can simply go and buy biodiversity credits on the market. And so it seems as if here the market philosophy is so dominant that there isn't really much room for us to think differently about what is the philosophical basis for our environmental regulation. And so we really are looking forward 
to listening to Cormac and to hear about this idea of an earth jurisprudence which could perhaps for us be a competing or at least a balancing jurisprudence for the way in which policymakers and governments should go about regulating environmental issues. It's really not good enough for governments to give up and to decide that in fact the market is the best mechanism for managing our environmental issues. So with that, I'm going to welcome Cormac to the podium to hear the grand narrative. Welcome, Cormac. Good evening. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here and to see Rosemary again, and, um, but also to have an opportunity to um, address you all. And um, it's, it's been fantastic being in Australia this, this last week. It's been my first time in Australia, and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to see a bit of, the, of your countryside, and, and in particular to be exposed to some of the indigenous understandings um, of uh, regulating people's relationship with the land. And uh, which I think are uh, very consistent with the ideas that I'll be speaking about this evening. So what I'm going to be talking about, as you can see, is about reframing society for the 21st century. Now, that immediately raises the question of uh, do, we need to ref do we need to reframe society? Um, and uh, the short answer, I think, is that we do because this is where we're headed. Um, the societies that we live in are completely uh, unsustainable and hence unviable in the long term. Um, all the indicators uh, are very, very clear that we are living way beyond the capacity of the, of the planet to support um, industrial societies. And when I say we, I'm primarily talking about the industrial societies um, that dominate the earth at the moment. But what do we mean by reframing? Um, sorry, the, 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 perhaps those of you um, who aren't uh, familiar with the reference, the, the, the slide that I'm showing is the remains of a, of a civilization on Easter Island. And um, this was a once flourishing civilization which um, over-exploited the environment and then collapsed with the, with the effect that, to the extent that the remaining survivors um, ended up eating each other. Um, and they, of course, left with a very small population eventually. And these monuments um, are pretty much what's left of, of that society. And we may think that that's, that's uh, something which happened to an isolated society and it couldn't happen. But it's very, very clear if you look at the indicators of, of um, how we are over-exploiting the earth and that that rate of, of over-exploitation is accelerating in most cases, that we are also on the road to collapse. Um, and that industrial civilizations that we, as we know them uh, will almost certainly not make it past the end of the century, um, so they'll either transform or, or collapse. But returning now to this idea of reframing, <clears throat> when I uh, speak about reframing, what I mean is really changing our idea of society because we tend to see the world through a particular frame, if you like, and as uh, the philosopher Schopenhauer said, every man takes the limits of his own field of vision for the limits of the world. In other words, we set a frame um, and we look out into the world through the frame, and after a while we don't see the frame anymore, um, and we believe that what we're looking at is the entire universe. But of course, there is much that lives outside of, uh, that is outside of the frame. And if we are... I believe that 
the industrial societies are unviable and the, one of the main reasons why we're having such difficulty in resolving some of the central uh, challenges such as climate change is because the solutions that we need lie outside our current frame. So, for example, if you, if you look at climate change, the industrial societies have been built on the availability of cheap energy from hydrocarbons. Um, this is what's given us the energy. Before that, we essentially had to rely on the energy that we got from food. Suddenly we discovered we can burn coal and generate electricity and oil, etc. And that makes us at least 70 times more powerful. So it's a kind of a, a magic potion. Um, but the, now we, we are suddenly faced, these same industrial societies are suddenly faced with the dilemma that the magic potion which has enabled them to be so powerful and to build themselves up is also killing them. And you can see them kind of circling in confusion um, trying to deal with climate change because climate change is not the problem. Climate change is a symptom of a deeper underlying malaise which is our dysfunctional relationship with Earth. So, if you, if you try and approach this problem at the level of climate change, it's a bit like if you've got a, a, a patient with a fever, um, <clears throat> a rising temperature, and you can, you can mop the patient's brow to try and reduce the fever a little bit, and that will help a little bit. But the real issue is to diagnose the problem. Why has the person got the fever? Have they, have they injured themselves? Have they, have they contracted the disease, etc.? Because only by a proper diagnosis of what is, what is leading to that symptom can you, can you solve it. And um, the, the problem that, that, that we... Uh, I think one of the difficulties that we have is that in the international negotiations, etc., we insist on dealing with climate change as a discrete issue as opposed to one symptom among many of the same problem, which is our essentially dysfunctional relationship with, with nature. And, of course, there are so many issues which are also critical, um, depletion of, of fresh water, desertification, uh, uh, loss of biological diversity, collapse of fish stocks. Then, then you can go on and on and on. But all of these are symptoms of, of uh, systemic stress, which has been caused by humans. So um, if we... I've, I've already dealt with, with, with some of the issues which, which indicate um, why, we, why we are unsustainable. And essentially our societies are a bit like a bulldozer, which is, which is um, bulldozing other cultures, destroying biological diversity, destroying fertile soils, etc. And because of framing, for example, the climate change discussion in a narrow way in terms of uh, emissions of, of, of greenhouse gases caused primarily by our energy sources, we, a lot of the solutions that are proposed tend to be around renewables. Like, so I'm very in favor of renewables, but you can see that if your culture is a kind of a bulldozer, um, it may actually be better that the bulldozer runs out of fuel than you simply put a new fuel in its tank and, and, and get it to carry on bulldozing. So, but if we talk about reframing, um, what we need, really need to talk about or understand is what I've called the, the cosmology or the mythologies of industrial societies. Because this is our frame. Societies, we as individuals and collectively as societies, we understand ourselves in particular ways. We have stories which we tell ourselves. And in this case, our industrialized societies um, have a number of core myths um, or understandings of the world which are completely erroneous. 
but these are the uh, myths which inform the, um, our, our legal and governance systems. So back in, if one goes into the distant past of almost any culture, you'll find mythologies, understandings, which see, which inculcate an attitude of reverence to earth. Um, the idea that we are fully, wholly dependent on earth for sustenance, etc. Um, often she's seen as a, Earth is seen as a, as a mother, um, people, the societies embedded within the cycles of nature. And the overall drive of a society like that is to honor and respect um, Earth because there is a deep understanding that the well-being of people is derived from Earth and we are wholly dependent on that. But then, of course, in, in the Age of Enlightenment in the 16th and 17th century in Europe emerges this mechanistic understanding of, of, the, of the Earth. And this is a, is a model, uh, literally intended to be a model of the universe. So it, it works like a clock. And, and the idea was that if you just work out exactly how the, clogs, the cogs work, um, then you can operate the entire system for the benefit of the human beings. And um, you can see with the mechanistic worldview disappears the idea of the world as a, a, a community of living beings, of entities, uh, gods and spirits, um, etc., an animate world that, that we must respect and um, uh, revere and negotiate relationships with at, at all times. And of course, at the center of this machine is the human. And uh, out of that um, mechanistic worldview um, comes the idea that the humans are the center of the universe. Um, and uh, two of the baddies in the story are Descartes and Francis Bacon, who, who begin to say it's not just that we're at the center of the universe, um, of this mechanistic universe, is that we're also superior. We are the pinnacle of creation and that our role is to dominate and control um, the system for our own benefit. So you see the emergence of what could be called a colonial attitude. Um, then as society develops, we, we begin to, to decide, um, particularly once we discover coal and hydrocarbons and we have this extra energy, with, with this additional power, the arrogance grows and we redefine progress. So um, the pursuit of human well-being now becomes um, uh, an idea that, that more is better and that we must drive out the wild and civilize the planet. And this is a painting called American Progress. And you can see in this situation the, the new mythologies actually emerging. This is um, Progress is personified as a goddess and from her hand she's trailing the telegraph wires which string across America. She's followed by the stagecoaches and the trains and the, and the farmers in the foreground. And with her she brings the dawn and the retreating dark, in the retreating darkness, the, the buffalo are fleeing and the indigenous people who are seen as, as, as wild and being dispelled. So you can literally see these new mythologies emerging. And um, of course we can, and I should add that, that um, if this seems a very romantic uh, idea that, that one takes um, ideas and turns them into mythologies, literally. Um, I was walking around Sydney this morning and, and saw in one of your parks there's a memorial and there are statues of what looks like a Greek uh, goddess reclining and, and she's holding the staff with the twin snakes which, which is normally um, held by Hermes and she's described as commerce. 
Um, and so you literally have the situation where commerce um, in the middle of your city is elevated to the status of a goddess. And this is part of creating the new mythology, which becomes the frame within which you establish your society. And, um, of course, this is probably our current idea of progress um, and human development. And it, it, it's absolutely pervasive for companies um, profit going upwards, ever upwards. Um, the central objective of community, of, of nation states is to have a GDP that, that does that. Um, and um, with this comes the idea that because we are superior um, and we are above everything else, we are also separate to Earth. So we have the dominant uh, mythology, if you like, is one of, of anthropocentrism, where human beings are the most important. And the Earth is no longer a mysterious, living, wonderful community within, which encloses us and uh, surrounds us and gives us our identity and meaning and everything we need to sustain us. It becomes something separate from us, something to be owned, controlled, traded, etc. Um, and uh, this is problematic, deeply problematic, I believe, for, for at least two main reasons. First of all, this is an inaccurate and unhelpful map of reality. The idea that the world works like a machine is something which has been long abandoned by science. Um, but, it is not, but it has not been abandoned by law because, for example, our legal systems entrench this anthropocentric worldview into our societies. To give but one example, if we consider the situation where we regarded people as property, we call them slaves, we said the slave owner is a person recognized as a person under law with full legal rights. On the other hand, you have the slave, which is, who is property, like this lectern, and by definition incapable of having rights. In that circumstance, those circumstances, you can see that there will inevitably be an exploitative relationship between the slave owner with all the rights and the slave who has none. Now, that exploitative relationship has been hardwired into the relationships between, on the one hand, humans and corporations, and on the other hand, the entire rest of the living community on this planet. Nature is defined as property, and that is one of the reasons why we have an inherently exploitative relationship with nature, um, because unless you address the, that fundamental imbalance, uh, that exploitative um, relationship will continue. So, but the, the, the map is inaccurate simply because the world isn't a machine. Um, ecology tells us that, quantum physics tells us that the, the, we are a part of the system in the same way as a cell or an organ is part of the body and we are wholly dependent on the body. The idea that we are separate from it um, and superior to it is simply untrue. So we are making our policy decisions on the basis of a map or a cosmology, an understanding of the functioning of the planet, which is based on 16th and 17th century science. And the, the scientific community may have abandoned it, but the legal and government community certainly haven't. But it's also a deep pathology, because while you have a mechanistic understanding, it's fine to be cruel to animals. There, there are lots of quotes about you know, the screams of animals under vivisection being like the squeaking of, a, of the wheels of an unoiled machine. Um, the, the, we also lose the sense of communion. Instead of living in a wonderful community of amazing living beings and relating to them, we are suddenly uh, surrounded by 
by objects. And with that, we, our, our sense of alienation increases. We have a loss of community. While we're feeling superior, we can see the growth of narcissism in our society. Um, Thomas Berry used to refer to human society becoming autistic in relation to the natural world. While we believe that more is better, we essentially consign ourselves to living in fear um, because we have to compete for scarce resources. And if, you're, if your, neighbor, your neighbor might outcompete you, and uh, anyway, if your neighbor gets a better car, then you've effectively dropped down the social rankings and you need to, in turn, get a better car. And, and that can never be satisfied. So you consign yourself to a, a rat race based on fear and anxiety. And of course, with the idea of separation, you know, comes this incredible sense of alienation, of loss of meaning, of loss of identity, which, which is so pervasive in our societies. So if we are to change away from this, uh, this uh, frame that is causing us so many problems, what do we do? Essentially, I think you can, you can sum it up um, by talking about um, what Thomas Berry uh, referred to uh, Thomas Berry was an American a, a Catholic monk who was a, was a, me, a mentor of mine and, and a, one of the finest thinkers I've come across on these issues. And he talked about the distorted dream of an industrial technological paradise as being replaced by the more viable dream of a mutually enhancing human presence within an ever-renewing organic-based earth community. The dream drives the action. In the larger cultural context, the dream becomes the myth that both guides and drives the action. So his understanding was that you first had to change the dream, the idea which society has of itself, the idea which society has of the nature of, of human beings and their role on the planet. First change the dream, in other words, reframe, and then that um, drives, the, drives the action, and you gradually put in place new myths. And uh, Thomas was fond of saying the, the world is not a collection of objects. The universe is not a collection of objects, but a communion of subjects. And that is the, the central uh, shift in perspective, if you like, which underlies this work. But get the point of this um, lecture this evening is to talk about earth rights. And if we move towards a, a more holistic understanding of, of the earth, so we we move away from the mechanistic model and see Earth as a whole. And perhaps more importantly, we shift to the understanding that we don't live on the Earth, we live in the Earth. We are, if you like, such an integral part of this planet that we are more correctly understood as an aspect of Earth. Our bodies are entirely created from Earth. The energies of, of Earth are constantly flowing through us um, our imaginations are shaped entirely by our experiences of this world, etc. So we are, um, if we shift to, the, to this different perspective, we can begin to reimagine um, our governance systems and our societies. But the question of why, why rights? Because um, we could do this in many different ways. Well, I think one of the most important things about talking about Earth rights is it presents a direct challenge to the anthropocentric notion because as soon as one talks about other beings having rights, one has to accept that they are 
a subject, that the law regards them as a subject, as a being. Um, and that immediately enlarges the frame. It enlarges the class of people, who, uh, the class of beings who we believe are worthy of consideration, not only morally, but in terms of, of our legal systems. And throughout the uh, social justice struggles um, throughout society, this has been a central feature. So um, to abolish slavery, the, what people did is they didn't just say, um, let's pass a law which uh, enhances the, the life experience of the, of the slave. In other words, you could pass a law which says you may not whip your slave more than once a day. Now, if, you, if slaves are being whipped five times a day, that helps. But the abolitionists said this is not primarily about improving the welfare of, of slaves. This is about abolishing slavery. You have to cut to the chase. You have to attack the heart of, heart of the problem. Um, the the suffragettes and the women's movement, feminists, they didn't fight for the sustainable use of women. They said, this is fundamentally wrong and we must change it. And unfortunately, although I'm a, an environmental lawyer and I practice as such, environmental law is still operating in the, from the premise that we must ameliorate the worst of what we do. We must whip the slaves only once a day. We must pollute the rivers with no more than X parts per million, etc. And it's the same with the international climate change regime. It's not addressing this core issue of the equivalent of slavery. Um, and uh, one of the advantages of taking a rights-based approach is that it does this. And of course, Although we, we often talk about nature having inherent rights in the same way as we say human beings have inherent rights, in fact we're talking about using the language of rights to protect some of the basic, most fundamental relationships. At the moment we use rights to protect fundamentally important relationships between human beings, but we've ignored the fundamentally important relationships which we have with other beings. Um, so we, we say we have a human right to life, even if the, your country denies you that right, even if the courts of your country deny you that right. You have that right simply by virtue of the fact that you exist as a human being, that you have come into being as a hu human being. And because of that, you can, your rights can be balanced against the rights of others. We need to do the same with the rest of, of uh, Earth so that one can use the machinery of the state to balance the rights not only among people but also the, the rights of people vis-à-vis -vis other uh, species and aspects of the, of the uh, Earth. But I think that moving towards the, the idea of um, a movement, um, there are also very strategic um, good strategic reasons for moving to a rights-based approach. Um, first of all, it addresses the, the core issue. Um, we don't get led off into the thickets of climate change science um, where people argue about parts per million and whether the, the fact that certain academics' um, emails got hacked into changes the, what governments should do. And so much of environmental discussion, whether it's about um, coal seam gas, fracking, etc., um, all of these things, the, the people, they try and divert you into the thickets of spurious scientific arguments, etc., and you lose your support base. What this does is as soon as you talk about these issues, the core issues on the table, which is our dysfunctional relationship with the whole of which we form part, and um, you, it, it avoids being uh, sidetracked into, into these complex um, scientific arguments which really don't address the main issue. 
It also changes the terrain. This is very important, I think, because at the moment, if you are an environmental activist or a social justice activist and you seek to protect the, the earth, if you seek to protect what is most important to humanity as a whole and to other species, you get prosecuted for property crimes. You get prosecuted for malicious damage to property or for trespass or one of these other property crimes. And of course, the major criminals, the people who are really doing the damage, are portrayed as the injured party who, can, who, um, who use the law to protect themselves. But if you say there are fundamental rights which pre-exist, which came before property rights, then the defenders of earth occupy the, the high ground and um, one is in a situation of saying, actually, you must prosecute those or, um, or prevent those who are infringing the more fundamental rights in the same way as infringements of human rights are, are, are addressed. It also provides uh, an important platform for building a very broad movement for, for unity. So, for example, if, if you're going to take, um, uh, you know, if you're going to take a sort of Marxist approach or something like that, you have real difficulties building a, um, alliances across class lines, for example. Now, as a friend of mine was fond of saying, um, the common ground that we are seeking is beneath our feet. We are all earthlings. We all have a deep, fundamental, common interest in protecting this planet and every aspect of that planet, of the planet. And so this, this approach provides a broad uh, platform for building unity, which pulls in indigenous people, um, uh, farmers, um, trades unionists, um, environmental activists, um, animal welfare activists, etc., can all come into this, um, can find a space for themselves on this platform. I also believe that it's fundamentally easier to mobilize around a positive vision. The amount of energy it will take to tear down this current system is enormous. I believe it's far better for us to say, you know what, we're just going to start building the future that we want right now and we're going to put our energy in there. Of course it will mean that sometimes you'll have to fight those who oppose your corporate interests, etc. But um, it's much easier to mobilize people around a positive vision of increasing human well-being in a way which is in harmony with nature, if you like, or which contributes to the, the health of the whole instead of continuing with a fear-based approach, which is about fighting over the last remaining resources as our civilizations collapse. Um, it's an approach which is equally valid in the global south um, and in the global north, um, particularly where you have strong indigenous communities and you can draw on those existing cultural understandings. It's particularly uh, valuable. Um, uh, Rosemary was talking earlier about the predominance of the market approach here in Australia. One of the, the great difficulties with the market approach, of course, is as soon as you commodify something and you put it into the market, those who've got all the money can buy it all up. It makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. That is the logic of the system. But I can't come and buy your human rights. Um, of course, if you're wealthier, it's a bit easier for you to enforce your human rights, or a lot easier than if you don't have money. So it's not perfect. But the equity um, uh, considerations of a rights-based approach are much, much stronger than other approaches which rely on the markets and essentially um, permit those who already have the money, often uh, gained by previous exploitations of Earth, to then um, accumulate um, whatever rights there may um, be available. 
And lastly, one of the most important strategic advantages is that it's a good time. The climate change talks, I don't believe, are going anywhere in particular. There is a real dearth of new ideas. Um, we don't have any clear way into the future that is being proposed by international organizations or national governments, in my view. And it's very uh, useful at this stage to have a group of countries in Latin America, led by Bolivia and Ecuador, who are putting these issues onto the international agenda and creating a bit of space um, there. And for some reason, as I'll explain later, the receptivity to these ideas seems to have, have increased um, very much in the last few years. So turning now to the, to the emerging movement, um, those are the strategic advantages that I was talking about. But um, if we look now at the emerging global movement around these ideas, it's very interesting to, to see the different phases. Um, and I've just picked out a few milestones on the way. I would say that the first phase was, to borrow a phrase from Christopher Stone, thinking the unthinkable. In his seminal 1973 article, Should Trees Have Standing?, he talked about the fact that at first these ideas are unthinkable. The idea that a tree should have legal st could have legal standing to be represented in a court of law seems unthinkable. And it's a very good observation because the reason why it's unthinkable is because it's beyond the frame. The frame has been drawn um, before you get to trees. The frame used to be drawn before you got to people of other race, before you got to women, before you got to children, etc. And the frame has been gradually expanded. Um, so the first thing to do is to, to say to people, you know what, there's something beyond the frame. The unthinkable becomes thought. And then the great work by Thomas Berry, who I've mentioned already, was a significant one. Um, the book that I wrote, Wild Law, first came out in 2002, and shortly afterwards, Wild Law conferences were started in the UK. And every, every year since then, there, have been a wild, there has been a Wild Law conference in the UK. In the last two years, they've been having two conferences every year, one in Scotland and one in England. Um, as you heard earlier, we've had, the last weekend was the third Wild Law conference in Australia. Um, and these uh, have been very important in um, spreading the, these ideas. So the Wild Law, also the, um, the work done by the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund in the United States who ran democracy schools, the foundation of, in 2006, of the Center for Earth Jurisprudence, and Professor Judith Coons from the center is, is here with us this evening. Um, and then the ideas began, began to, to take hold practically. And in 2007, a little borough in the United States, the Tamakwa Borough, passes um, uh, an ordinance which rejoices in the name of the sewage sludge ordinance. But the remarkable thing about the sewage sludge ordinance was that although it was aimed at preventing the spreading of toxic um, and poisoned sewage sludge on, on farmlands um, where crops were going to be grown, it recognized rights for nature um, and for natural communities. So you begin to see this. And what's important to understand is that these ideas are both very, very ancient, and for, but for industrialized societies, new. Um, and uh, the most exciting thing, I think, has been the acceleration in, recent in the recent sort of two and a half to three years. So the first major step was probably 2008, where in, in September the, the people of, of Ecuador had a referendum in which they adopted a constitution that has very, very strong uh, rights for nature clauses in it. 
And 2009, in, on the 22nd of April, the United Nations was convinced to declare um, Mother Earth Day. And on that day, President Evo Morales um, of Bolivia called for a universal declaration of the rights of Mother Earth to balance out the universal uh, declaration of human rights. Um, as you can see, the first wild, Australian Wild Law Conference in October and the ALBA countries, that's the Bolivarian Alliance um, uh, in Latin America, calls for the adoption of a universal declaration. In December of that year, you have the, the COP15, the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Copenhagen. And um, um, after that, you have um, the people are excluded from that meeting and it, it fails. As a result, in January, so months later, the next year, the President Evo Morales says, I'm going to have a People's World Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth, and anybody can come. Um, that occurs in April. Um, the volcano goes off in Iceland. Nobody can get there from Europe. They can't fly out of Europe. People trying to fly through Europe from Asia and North Africa can't get there. They're expecting 15,000 people. Then it seems like a disaster. Nobody knows if anybody's going to pitch up and 35,000 people pitch up. Amazing event. And out of that comes the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. So about a year from the time that the, this idea is put on the international stage, we already have a text adopted uh, by the, this huge conference. Um, and in September of that year, a Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature is formed, um, a group of us meeting in Ecuador. Then this year, um, uh, Less than a year after, well, almost a year after the Universal Declaration, um, there is an interactive dialogue of the, of the General Assembly of the United Nations, and uh, myself and Dr. Vandana Shiva from India get to address the United Nations General Assembly on these issues. So this idea has gone from completely invisible on the international stage to a debate within the UN General Assembly in a matter of, of a few years. Bolivia's um, got a law on the subject. Um, in Ecuador, we have the first successful case earlier this year based on the rights of nature provisions and now the third Australian Wild Law Conference. Um, and this is a picture of um, the... The, the person closest to the camera is Dr. Alberto Acosta, who was the head of the Constitutional Assembly in Ecuador, which charged with coming up with the new constitution. The activists on the far side of the table, it's Thomas Lindsay in the, in the uh, tie and Mari Margon next to him from the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. These are the activists that, that worked on the Tamaqua Borough uh, Ordinance and they had been brought to Ecuador to discuss these ideas. Um, they convinced um, uh, Alberto Acosta of the validity of these ideas, and he was key in pushing them through. But the real force, the real political power, came from the indigenous communities who said, we might not use this language of rights, but this is fully consistent with our worldview, and if rights is the language of the international community that the international community understands, then we're quite happy um, to adopt this, and if that's what you need to do to, to ensure that, that Earth is respected in a, in a westernized legal system, then that's what we're going to do. Um, but importantly, there's also a deeper shift in, the, in Ecuador. So the Constitution uh, abandons the idea of GDP growth as the main um, uh, objective and talks about living well, um, 
translate Suma Causa in, in, in Quechua, uh, El Buen Viver in, in, in Spanish, but it's an idea that one, that essentially the prime objective of the state must be to protect, to protect the conditions um, which people require to live well, and that is fresh air, clean water, um, uh, fertile soils, and the protection of communities from outside destruction. And the people say, if we do, if we have that, we can we can look after ourselves. We can make a good life for ourselves in harmony with nature. And then, as I mentioned, we see the, the, the COP15 in, in Copenhagen, and it was only this is part of one of the negotiating rooms. And I had the good fortune to be there speaking on rights of nature. Um, and uh, when I saw those rooms, I realized that there wasn't much hope of the system de- uh, delivering the kind of answers that we so desperately need. Can you imagine if you were the CEO of a company about to go bankrupt that needed a very, very strong uh, turnaround plan and you had to get your tough new plan through that 192 country delegations, each one of them horse trading on their, on their own uh, national interests or almost all of them. Um, that convinced me that that particular pipe is almost blocked. Um, despite the fact that there was huge pressure from the activists and they marched in massive numbers, um, the movement was visible, um, they were met with, with uh, great force by the police and the queues of people you see there are, are waiting to be processed, they're all arrested. So the voice of the concern of the people is effectively shut out of this process. Um, this is the, uh, in the centre, uh, Pablo Solon, the Bolivian ambassador to the United Nations, who you may have seen in, uh, being the only person standing up in Cancun and saying, I'm not agreeing to this because this is not a plan that is viable. And on, he's flanked by two indigenous people, a man and his wife, who, who were the co-presidents together with myself of the um, meeting of the working group in Cochabamba that prepared the the um, Universal Declaration, Eva Morales and Cochabamba. Now, one of the, the interesting things about going to the Cochabamba meeting, having been to, to Copenhagen, was how very, very different the approaches were. So when you land in La Paz, which is very high, and you fly down to Cochabamba in the lowlands, you, um, you pass uh, the Andes, and you can see the, the loss of the glaciers, they're melting. And the people in the lowlands understand absolutely that their livelihoods and their futures are entirely dependent on the water that flows down from the highlands. And they understand that when the mountains lose their white ponchos, that will be the end of them. And this is not a situation that they have control over. So when you had thousands and thousands of, of peasant people in their traditional uniforms flocking down to attend this conference, um, Climate change for them is not an abstract thing. It's not about parts per million. It's not about com- the complexities of carbon trading systems. It's a very real life and death issue, which is, which is affecting them right now. Um, and the difference in pr- approach was very uh, marked. Instead of bad-tempered uh, horse trading, everybody at Cochabamba was working together um, to produce the words the, to articulate a common position which could convince the rest of the world. The, the declaration was, was worked on with 400 people in the room, each contributing to it. Um, it was an incredible experience, um, but incredible uh, positivity um, and uh, very strong uh, involvement by indigenous uh, people. And out of it we come, comes the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. And 
that statement that you see there um, is part of it. But you can immediately see that that statement is wholly incompatible with the understandings which underpin our current legal systems. Um, because as soon as you see the earth as a whole um, and that it's composed of an interrelated community of beings, you're moving very far away from, from a current system. But the, 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 the strange thing about it is that I think that the arguments, it's almost untenable scientifically or in terms of any major wisdom tradition that you choose to name, um, to argue that that statement is not correct um, is I would say, almost uh, impossible to sustain. Um, and so the Universal Declaration um, talks about other beings having rights, and partic- but a lot, large proportion of it is about imposing uh, duties on human beings. Um, you see the statement that every human being is responsible for respecting and living in harmony with Mother Earth. Um, and to give you an idea of what this means practically, the Copenhagen Accord on the left, <coughs> it, um, which came out of Copenhagen, obviously, is compared with the People's Agreement, which came out of uh, Cochabamba on the right. And, the, and the, the key issue here is that the Copenhagen discussions are about trying to determine exactly how far we can exploit Earth without causing collapse that will kill us all. Um, so it's acceptable that, that the small island states and various other countries disappear, um, but um, as long as uh, things don't get too bad. The people's agreement is completely different. It's saying it's about health. It's about saying if we want the system to be healthy, the only th- what we know is that the, the ideal health was pre-industrial levels. So that's what we should aim at in the long term. But certainly what we need to do is go... We can't aim at limits which may or may not be uh, safe. We need to go for the, the limits, say 1.5 degree average increase, which science indicates is safe, um, and then gradually work um, uh, to, back to pre-industrial levels. But the key issue is the one is about setting exploitation standards, and the other approach is about achieving integral health. And those are very, very uh, different approaches. Um, this is uh, Mount Tungurá, uh, active volcano, which, um, where we met to uh, establish the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. Um, what's next? Um, the, COP, the next conference of the parties of the Climate Change Convention is happening in December in Durban, South Africa. Um, difficult to say at this stage. The main negotiations will probably fail, but certainly um, uh, we are hoping to see... Um, the, the, the people's uh, movements on the streets beginning to articulate their demands increasingly in, in the language of the rights of, of, of Earth. And then next year we've got Rio plus 20 um, in, in Brazil. Um, unbelievably, um, this has been reduced to, I think, two or three days for this very important conference. But it will be very interesting to see whether or not the movement is strong enough to put these issues fairly and squarely on the table by then. Um, but uh, those are some references to the, the websites where you can find more information about this. But in, in conclusion, I'd just like to, to say that um, for, for many of us from South Africa, we were anti-apartheid activists, and the word apartheid means separateness. And separateness is the disease which has deeply afflicted our societies. This idea that we are separate from as opposed to be an integral part of the earth community. And as far as, far as 
uh, we seem to be acting on the belief that there is a kind of a, a humans only door into a viable future in the way we used to have whites only doors in South Africa. Um, there is no humans only door. We either go into the future as a part of this integral community or we are excluded from it. And if we don't play by the rules of this community, we will be excluded by it, from it. <clears throat> but I'd like to really leave you with the idea that there is a much better way of pursuing human well-being, health and happiness um, than by exploiting Earth. But in order to, to get there, we need to transform the purpose, the philosophy, the structure and the functioning of our governance systems to enable us to find this viable path into the future. And uh, I believe that we live at a particularly exciting time. The times in which we live are significant not only on a matter of on historical timescales. Um, the demise of apartheid was perhaps significant on a scale of 100 years, maybe even 200 years. But the transition that the earth is in, the mo is in at the moment has been not been seen for many, many millions of years. The last great extinction was 65 million years ago, and we're, we're in the early stages of the sixth one. So the chemistry of the planet has been transformed. We are in uh, a period of transition which is significant on geological timescales. And for whatever reason, we are the people that are alive right now. And so although there is great danger, there is also incredible opportunity to fundamentally transform human society by encouraging everybody to abandon the delusions of separation um, and superiority, which were the very same delusions that, that uh, fueled the apartheid state in South Africa. And I hope all of you will um, uh, feel inspired to play your part in uh, promoting that transition. Thank you. much, Cormac, for a very stimulating and inspiring address. And I must say that as I was thinking about you this morning, I was remembering very well the role that you played as a, as a student activist um, under the apartheid government. And I must say the 80s weren't an easy time to be law students in a country like South Africa. But I'm sure that many of you have questions that you would like to ask of Cormac. So we have half an hour, if that's how long you would like to be here. Maybe on a Friday night you don't choose to be here for that long. But in any case, we would very much welcome questions from the audience. Yeah. Uh, on uh, Victoria Indigenous Research Fellow, have you have Thank you. Thank you very much for what you've said, but... Uh, with respect, a lot of the things that you've raised tonight are not new. You know, I, for one, have been intimately involved in these sorts of issues uh, as an Aboriginal person since the 1970s. And um, these sorts of issues are very close to the way Aboriginal people think about what's happening to this country. And I refer especially to the very um, important... Uh, leadership provided by David Mulgarly, for example, and there are others, there are many other Aboriginal philosophers who have talked about the sorts of things that they saw happening. And he, of course, uh, David Mulgarly talked about connections and he said that um, uh, 
that uh, Aboriginal people keep getting blocked from giving the real message, the important message about the way of living in this country. Um, I just want to depart from that and ask you about another thing that you didn't actually talk about tonight, which I think is really crucial to whether or not we're going to be able to affect any change. And that is, how much are people in the West really willing to give up? Because I believe there is still a connection, there is still a symbiotic relationship, for example, between the West and the people of the third and fourth worlds. Because, you know, for example, the American economy um, exists on the blood of Mexican people the blood and the death and the dying of people trying to get over that border, for example. I mean, if anyone knows any of that, but the US is sucking Mexico dry. And if you're there for any period of time, you start to understand that. And the whole phenomenon of the beast, you know, which is the train that people throw themselves onto to try and get into the US and so on. It's just absolutely tragic. But the reality is that there are possibly 5 or 10% of us in the world that are really reaping the benefits of all of the havoc that commodity capitalism is wreaking on the planet. And indigenous people, like the ones you refer to in South America, are very similar to Aboriginal people here. Aboriginal people talk amongst themselves. I mean, they have very clear ideas about this and they believe they'll survive because they're used to living in poverty. It's not anything for Aboriginal people to go days without a meal. And in the country that I come from, which isn't so far from Sydney, young men are now hunting in the National Park without guns and without knives because they understand this might be the future and they are the people who will survive because they know how to get food, they know how to hunt for it and so on. But what I come to when I talk to people about these sorts of issues is that young Western people particularly, I want to be activists about it, they want to be vegan, they want to be this and that, but in actual fact they are the people who fly around the planet. You know, we, I can include myself, I'm part of the West, you know, I fly around the planet, um, I have a car, I, I, ha I enjoy a really good lifestyle. I, mean, I don't have a job at the moment, but I can still have a good lifestyle. And so, you know, what is it that the West is prepared to give up? A lot of people actually think that these changes can come about through talking at conferences and so on, which everyone flies to. They're still using up. You know, at some point, people are going to have to decide what they're going to give up. What do you think? you know, a society like that which exists in Sydney is going to be pre prepared to give up. I honestly can't see them giving up much. Well, I'd, I'd first like to start with uh, by acknowledging <clears throat> that, as, as you quite correctly point out, many of the ideas in which this is based are very, very ancient ideas and they are, are found, I would say, in well, certainly every indigenous culture that I've had the opportunity to be exposed to and and my thinking has definitely been very much informed by indigenous understandings of the world. <clears throat> and um, in some ways, you can see the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth 
as an expression of an indigenous world perspective or cosmology um, translated into the language of the law, which is the language of the international community. So this is absolutely drawing on, on thousands of years of indigenous understandings of, the, of, the, of, of um, how the world works from, from throughout the world. And um, the difficulty, of course, is, is that indigenous cultures had extremely good uh, governance mechanisms and far more sophisticated, orders of magnitude more sophisticated than our current environmental law systems. Um, <clears throat> even the system of just taking one thing, the, uh, the concept of totemic animals or, or totems um, is a very, very sophisticated way of ensuring that every member of the community takes personal responsibility and collective responsibility for protecting um, what we now call the environment. But those cultures were very good at, at achieving compliance with members of those communities, and they don't, but have not got very strong mechanisms for achieving, ensuring that people who come from the outside and who don't care about that culture comply. So we, the, very much the thrust of Earth jurisprudence, this movement, is to, is to draw on and be inspired by those indigenous understandings of, of the world and to, to say, how can we learn from those? How can we, we, uh, uh, go to the remaining cultures that, that haven't been destroyed by industrialization and who have those this pre-industrial understandings of the world and who had already uh, solved some of these questions and get inspiration necessary to develop um, laws, which I can't call wild laws, to, that, that can work I- I- with uh, current societies. Um, and then to, but to address your, your second issue, um, I think that strategically or tactically, um, it's very difficult to get people to give things up. And I think that one of the weaknesses of the environmental movement has been to uh, express sustainability in terms of giving up and um, a kind of Calvinistic, it's a virtuous thing. Um, You know, you're not going to like it, but it's good medicine and that, that, that inspires a few people, but not most people. I think that the most important thing is to, is to say to people, um, we've, been, we've been sold a fake here. Instead of development being about human beings being able to actualize themselves fully and become more fully human and, and live healthy lives and communities, etc., development has got turned into infrastructure development, building roads, you know, cutting down forests, etc., GDP growth. And we know that that's not, you can, there's even scientific studies that will show you that that's not the way to increase human happiness. And certainly even the founder, of, the person who invented GDP said specifically, don't take this as a measure of human well-being. So what we've got to do is we have to phrase it to people that there is a better way in which you could be healthier and happier, etc., um, uh, as part of a community and say, pursue human happiness as part and well-being as part of the, the great community of life that we are so privileged to have been born, born into and rephrase it as a positive rather than, than a giving up. But certainly, of course, that must mean massive reductions in our cons- of what we take from, from nature. And um, we have to recognize that we are not the only uh, beings who are entitled to do that. For every indigenous cultures always emphasize for every taking there must be a, a reciprocal giving. The idea of reciprocal nurturance is very, very important. Um, and other beings are entitled to, to have food and habitat, etc. So um, I believe that although we could phrase it as giving up, and they will be giving up in a material sense, it's better to phrase it in terms of what we can gain 
Um, and of course, we have already given up all kinds of things. We, um, we've given up peace of mind. We've given up com- community. We've given up health. We've given up a lot of things in pursuance of this failed industrial dream and this failed human project to control and dominate the planet. Up at the back. Um, philosophically, um, I'm getting a sense that um, this um, rights of, of, of nature, wild frontiers movement, um, is... Um, based on a more non-anthropocentric, um, deep, deep ecological um, um, perspective. Um, if you were able to um, gaze into your crystal ball, um, would, you, um, would you speculate that society will become um, de-industrialised partly or um, should we be emphasising the idea of... Uh, eco-modernisation, that is to say um, a lot of the kind of industrial infrastructure that we currently uh, depend upon would be uh, metamorphosized into um, uh, sustainable uh, technologies. I'm certainly not against technology. Um, the difficulty is that it depends on your purpose. I, I don't think we try, we even trying to fit in with the greater system of order into which we've been born. Um, I think that we're trying to dominate it and control it, and I think that's reflected in our technologies and our in our economy and everything. I, as far as I'm concerned, if we recognise the reality, and I don't think it's an ideological debate. I think the the reality is that we are part of this community and we are wholly embedded within it. If we we start from that starting point and say, how can we rediscover the ecological niche of human beings? Other species need to occupy a place in a community, in an ecosystem in which they can uh, feed themselves in a way which also contributes to the health of the whole ecosystem that they fall part of. We've we've sort of temporarily pretended we could escape that that rule, um, but we have to rediscover how we can play a mutually beneficial uh, role with it within the ecosystems. And that is um, a big enough challenge, and it's difficult enough to really get our creative juices going. You know, they say that, they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we've got the mother of necessity facing us right now because our societies are, are heading one way. And that could create an impetus for a wonderful renaissance of culture um, um, so I, I, I certainly um, am not advocating a kind of Luddite approach where we throw everything away. I'm saying let's change, let's change the purpose of what we're doing. Um, and I think that that could be f- fantastically good for society. At the back. Yes. Um, I was just wondering how these ideas and your presentation was received by the delegates at the UN General Assembly. <laughs> I was asked that earlier. Um, I think that the answer is mixed, was the reception. On the one hand, it was very enthusiastically received by countries like Venezuela, who said, for, which I didn't know, that they are already teaching the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth in every school in Venezuela. Um, the other end of the spectrum was the United States delegation stood up and said, we don't think there's any need for any new treaties or international instruments whatsoever. We don't see why we're even talking about this. <clears throat> we think we should just stick with what we've got. But, I mean, to be fair to the person, she was obviously following instructions. Um, <clears throat> then there were other mixed reactions, very strong support from the Latin American countries, some from some African countries, um, others like 
the European Union stood up and said, we completely agree that we need a paradigm change, the existing system isn't working, we need to be... And I thought, oh, that's great, until the, the um, insiders in the UN said, no, but they mean a paradigm change to what they're calling the green economy, which is about, you know, commoditizing everything. So, so um, very mixed, um, and depends where, where you stand. Um, uh, and some countries just stood up and said, we're doing all of the kind of read out all the things that they were doing, you know, all their positive environmental programs, et cetera, and kind of missed the point. But um, I think that uh, it's still very early days, um, but I think one of the really important things is to build a mass movement that supports these ideas, because my view is that um, if you don't have political power from a mass movement, a grassroots mass movement throughout the world, your ideas will be disposed of and killed off in committee rooms wherever. Um, but of course, it would be nice to have this adopted by the United Nations, but I think it's by no means essential. Um, I think just having a text which has the legitimacy of coming out of a conference of 35,000 people enables us to discuss these ideas um, and to, to use it as a mobilizing document. So um, uh, I see personally and having worked for many years with governments, unfortunately, I think that the promise that we thought from Rio that the governments would finally take this seriously is not going to be met and that we are going to have to uh, find leadership elsewhere and I think that means civil society. Okay, and your question. You spoke of corporations with humans on the wrong side of the dysfunctional relationship with nature. Corporations are very good at co-option framing. Um, we've seen that with identity politics. And if you think of BP, um, does it really stand for beyond petroleum? Well, the reality in the Gulf maybe says not. Um, have you seen signs of corporate attempts to jump on what might be a bandwagon of birth rights for their own purposes? And how can you and how can we prepare to fight that off? I haven't seen it yet. Um, it may be because we're not well enough known yet. But I would certainly agree with you that corporations are a, a huge problem. I mean, we, we've basically designed a, a form. You used law to define a way for people to work together um, in a manner which is um, psychopathic, as the, the form of corporation demonstrated, um, but is certainly designed to promote the rapid exploitation of Earth. But it's by no means beyond our capacity to design other corporate forms which, where you design them to be socially responsible and environmentally responsible. It might end up being something like a co-op. Um, but certainly we have to, this business about not being able to take, not being held personally responsible for your actions and, and those kind of things which promote irresponsible behavior um, have to go. Hi. Um, yeah, firstly, I'd just like to say thank you very much for the talk. It was excellent. Um, I've got a, I guess, two-part question. Um, you just said that you, you don't advocate a kind of uh, Luddite uh, way of thinking. And in your talk, you, you mentioned uh, changing the dream or, or changing the mythology, which I think is very, very important. But... Um, you know, I think uh, Marx w would call, call that an idealist approach. So, you know, do you just ignore the destructive uh, infrastructure and industry that's in place? How is, is, you know, just by changing the dream, will you 
be able to you know, make industrial society green? No, I, I mean, I, I think that the first thing you do is work on changing the dream, but, but you know, as an activist, you've got to organise too. I, I'm, I'm by no means suggesting that just by changing the ideas that that's enough. Um, um, but look, the really good thing about being a cell in a great body, if I can use that analogy, is that everything that you do is important and affects the whole. So um, we, we have to... Um, the more people move to organic farming or eating organic products, um, the more people translate this, the, the new dream, if I can put it that way, into, into action, the better. And we can all play a part in, in, in shifting to this worldview because... Sorry, into bringing this worldview into, into, into being. Um, and uh, so, but I absolutely believe uh, that you have to strategize and organize and, and, and pull people in. And I would say that uh, it's not just a question of changing the ideas, it's that and more. Um, but uh, part of that is, is building alliances. Um, uh, Paul Hawken, in his book Blessed Unrest, talks about this, the, all the environmental and social justice organizations um, which exist in the world today represent collectively the biggest social movement the world has ever seen, but he feels it's fragmented and they don't have a common ideology. I, I certainly think that this um, could be the song sheet which unites people because it's not about an ideology that was invented by you know, Marx or whoever. It's saying that we need to sing the hymn sheet that we need to sing from, if you like, is, 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 is nature, is, is, is earth. Um, we need to we need to listen very carefully, as indigenous people do, to um, how the, the, the rules of the whole, and we need to adjust ourselves accordingly. So, um, yes, I, I believe that this will require activism um, and organising, and it it also has a deep uh, internal dimension. Um, it's uh, we've been brought up in a culture which is most of us, an industrialized culture, which is deeply antagonistic to this. And I know as somebody who was, by virtue of the fact that I was born a white male South African, I was born into an oppressor class under the apartheid years. And it took me some time to, to realize that. And then, you know, as students, we had to embark on a conscious process of re-educating ourselves and looking at all the unconscious values we've taken on from our society and saying, yeah, this doesn't make sense, this is rubbish, and discarding them. And, and, and we, we have to realize that we've been brought, most of us have been brought up in deeply anthropocentric cultures, and it's even embedded in our language and the words we use and how we think, and it, it, it takes a lot of uh, personal work to do this as well, um, but uh, it's very rewarding. Here in the front. Uh, professor Cormack, sorry, my apologies for being a little late. No, uh, I'm not a professor, but, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> uh, Peter Bentley is my name. I'm from Jamaica. Uh, white Jamaican, by the way, but I wear the Rasta colors, you know. Uh, I, I picked up that you were a little negative. I felt you, that you were a little pessimistic about the future. Yes. Uh, my background is peace and conflict research, uh, and I used to be very, very pessimistic, but now I'm optimistic, Mark. There's a hell of a lot going on with all the, the problems that we have, uh, but how, how, you know, how do we tackle all of this? Uh, you talked about activism. Hey, man, the uh, powers that be will put down activism. 
I would like to say or suggest that it's through science that we're going to be able to bring the powers that be to realization. I, I'm wondering what you might propose as a, you know, more than just activism and a mass movement. You don't need a mass movement. One percent can create a successful revolution. Uh, I, I'm just wondering. I'm just throwing out some ideas. I'm not sure if I'm totally pessimistic. I, I think what I'm saying is that if one looks science squarely in the eye, there is no doubt where this road ends, and it's not good for us. Any, habitat, any species that uh, destroys its habitat can have only a sticky ending, and we're doing that at, a, at an accelerating rate. So the, 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 we're on the wrong bus, and, we, and the bus is heading towards a cliff. It's, it's accelerating towards a cliff. So we, we've got to turn this bus in a different direction soon. Now, I'm not pessimistic. I, I certainly by no means given up hope. I think that it can happen. But it's got to be a big move, and it's got to be soon, and it's got to be very going. I, I don't have any faith in, in science changing um, uh, the world um, in that way. Um, I think we, one of the mistakes the environmental movement has made is to, is to believe that if we really explain very carefully and scientifically to the people in power why it's a really bad thing to carry on doing what they're doing, that they would change. I mean, this climate change science is absolutely crystal clear. Um, you know, but look, look, look at how the politicians are responding. People, it's like telling a drunk, drinking is really bad for you, and I can explain why. They understand that at one level, but there are all kinds of reasons why they don't respond. Denialism, vested interests, etc. So um, I'm afraid I am a, a believer in a form of revolution. I don't think it's a revolution which involves seizing power. Um, and in that, I, I think it's a, a, it's, a, it's a situation where you effectively shift the consciousness of society to the extent that, the, that what is currently acceptable norms become no longer acceptable. It's no longer acceptable to keep slaves. Um, even if the law was taken away, there would be huge social um, uh, opprobrium if you tried to do that. So, um, so um, I'm not sure of exactly how the change will happen, um, but I, my current strategy is wherever I see this energy emerging to try and support that. And, and uh, it's not a very complex strategy, but I think that it'll be partially organic. Um, and um, I certainly will be spending some more time in the future thinking about how we can uh, help uh, catalyze very rapid social change um, as fast as, we, as possible. Down here in the front. Uh, down here in the front. Oh, sorry, sorry. You first and then down here. Hi, um, thanks very much for the talk. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm from UTS. Um, my question relates to, I, I think it's, I first heard about this concept, I was researching a paper on um, the, uh, what might be termed on the current terminology, carbon farming in, in um, Arnhem Land, where indigenous people are being, um, more, are kind of being funded by ConocoPhillips, a gas company, to resume traditional burning practices, which are then measured and that, um, for a carbon offset and, and sold to them to somehow justify other corporate operations elsewhere. And so, um, sorry, you can't hear it. Sorry. Um, and what really struck me when I was in the Northern Territory looking into this was the way in which um, land law operates in Australia. Um, you have in Kakadu, for example, um, a, a World Heritage National Park where, which has been formerly owned by Indigenous people but leased back to the, the crown, and at the same time, all of these um, uranium mines, which are excised from the park, 
And so there's all these very contradictory and strange things going on there. I don't have a background in law, but it seems to me that um, this development that you're talking about, particularly the con like this being embedded in a constitution, fundamentally um, alters the uh, the way that sovereignty, state sovereignty, is grounded in land. And um, and so uh, I guess having no familiarity with legal traditions in South America, um, but I'm wondering if you could comment on um, the way that this alters um, you know, standard theories of sovereignty and um, also if it's been tested at all in any sense um, in courts against other um, claims. I mean, what, what you need to understand is that the current system of law, the legal system as a whole, is designed to facilitate and legitimate the exploitation of Earth. That, that's what it's there for. It's not a mistake. Um, it's, it's, it's designed to help mining companies extract things from the Earth, etc. Um, and, and that is because of the underlying belief systems. Um, if you come from a belief that system that you're separate from the earth and that more is better and the more you take, the better off you're going to be, um, then that's how you design your legal system. If you come from a different perspective um, that I've described, then you would have a very different legal system. So it's not a mistake that you see those injustices occurring. It's how the system is designed to work. Um, and it's not, I'm not just having a go to Australia. I mean, other countries are the same. Um, but if you go back to, to South America, um, in Ecuador, which has got these provisions in the Constitution, they had the first successful case earlier this year based on, the, on them. It was a situation in which there was a, a river flowing down a, a narrowish valley and they were cutting a road into the side of the mountain or widening the road and they were dumping, cutting the rock out and dumping the spoil into the river. And this altered the flow of the river and it started eroding land further down and, and um, having negative effects on the ecology of the river generally. And the, some landowners further down, instead of going to court and um, arguing that uh, their land, their property rights had been infringed, they went to court in the name of the river and said that you're infringing the, you're infringing the right of the river to flow um, and to play its, you know, to play its uh, normal role in the ecology of the area. And the judge upheld that um, on the basis of the constitutional provision. So the river won. Um, now, if that case were, were tried in, in this country or in South Africa or other countries, the arguments um, which we environmental lawyers, all we'd have to do is we'd have to say, you know, we'd have to argue about the details of whether they correctly ticked all the boxes when they applied for the license or whether they did the EI, environmental impact assessment properly. It would be a very technical argument about procedural details because that's all we'd have to use it. But the, but the advantage of this is it cuts to the chase. Is it more important that the river flows as it ought to or that people be allowed to dump rocks into it. You know, those rocks can go somewhere else. Maybe even the road doesn't have to be widened. It doesn't matter. But it's a balancing of the rights. Um, if the road had been for an absolutely essential purpose to, to save lots of young children from dying, maybe that would have been an acceptable infringement of the, of the rights of the river. But it's, the, the point is it's about balancing in the circumstances. Hello, uh, my name's Georgia. Thanks so much for talking to us tonight. Um, I was just wondering, in terms of um, actually creating these legal rights, um, how would they be implemented um, if you consider that like, creating rights to the environment means we'd all be breaking the law right now, like in our everyday lives? So I was wondering what kind of limits there would be to what constitutes a violation of Earth rights and what kind of um, standard or benchmark there would be for who's complicit in violating its rights? Look, the, 
it's going to require a huge amount of, of work and creativity um, of all of us um, to, to, to do this because um, you can all, if you look at the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth, it's like the DNA of a new society, of an ecologically sustainable society. If you take that code, that, that, those basic rights, and you were to implement them into institutions and law, by the time you'd finished, you would have created a completely different society which is ecologically um, sustainable. So it's, it, it's, it's about fundamental change, and we, we um, unlike indigenous cultures who've been living close to land for a long time, we've lost all the institutions and the ways of doing it that are necessary to achieve that. So we're going to require a lot of, of, inve- of invention. But there've been, um, but certainly, the idea is that you will have conflicting conflicts between the rights of different beings within the community, but they must be re- resolved in a way which maintains the health of the whole. Um, if you if you've got a zebra and a lion. Um, and they both have the right to exist. Um, uh, you could say if the lion catches and eats the zebra, the, the lion is infringing the rights of the, of, of the zebra to exist. But actually it's not a problem because the role of zebras, one of the roles of zebras in an ecosystem is to be eaten. And the lion itself will be eaten one day. The, the, the whole system is held together by food chains. So that relationship, whether the zebra escapes or the lion catches it and eats it, neither of those threaten the integrity of the whole. Um, so that conflict is not a problem. If you have a, a human being coming in, shooting thousands of zebra and leaving them to rot in, in, the, in the felt, then, then that would be an infringement because that is not something which serves the integrity of the whole and the, the human would be depriving the zebra of, of its fundamental right to life for no good reason, which is very different from depriving it of its life for subsistence to, to so there's always this, this balancing. But the truth of it is we will have to do all kinds of interesting things to, to do it. And um, there was a really interesting moot I was involved in at a wild conference in the UK where we set out a set of facts and we said, okay, assuming that there were rights uh, for nature in the Constitution and um, the facts were about a, a forest, rainforest being cut down in um, Malaysia in order to plant oil palms which would produce um, biofuel for cars which would reduce carbon emissions but the, it was a habitat for orangutans so you had council and many of the participants were actual barristers so we had a very interesting case but you had council for the orangutans council for the forest council for the company who was doing it and instead of arguing about whether or not the environmental impact assessment had been done properly you had real arguments about whose rights should, should come first and the outcome was essentially the forest shouldn't be cut because the human rights or interests involved were about uh, driving cars. And on the, but the, the orangutan's rights involved were more fundamental about to do with the maintaining viable populations, and therefore in those circumstances the orangutan's prevailed. But very interesting to get down to the real issues. Now, um, so many hands have gone up, but unfortunately we have come to the end of our formal session this evening. I'm sure that Cormac would uh, be prepared to just have a chat perhaps informally to one or two people. But I want to thank you so much, Cormac, for coming to Sydney and for giving this presentation, but also for being a wonderful audience and for being so engaged and putting very good questions to Cormac. Thanks again to uh, Meredith and to David as well. Thank you. Thank you.